And that segues into today's, today's sermon. Just to recap where we've been, this is the last sermon of this short series I'm doing on discipleship. And as we've seen, discipleship is vital to the church and the Christian life. And the passage we've been looking at is Acts chapter 4, so, or excuse me, Acts chapter 2. So I invite you to turn there with me one more time. This is the third Sunday we've looked at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So I ask if you'll please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us as people, Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would bless, mightily bless and empower the reading of your scriptures, the reading of your word, and now the preaching, the preaching of your truth. And I pray that I would fade into the background and that our, our glorious Lord would stand forth and that we would hear his voice today and not mine. We can listen to my voice all day and it will do us no good. But if we hear a word from you today, you can give us life. For you have and you alone have the words of eternal life. So bless us today as we look to you and your word. Have your way with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. In this series, we've seen that discipleship is indeed vital to the life of the church and indeed vital to the Christian life itself. And we've, uh, we started this series by, by looking at, as a point of reference, Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, where Paul says, Him, speaking of Christ, who is the hope of glory, as he says in the previous verse, Him, Christ, this hope of glory, Him we proclaim, that's preaching, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. So Paul leans upon divine strength to empower him to toil and labor and struggle to do this one thing. To so preach and so warn and so teach that the people God has put under His care that He'll answer for on the last day, that those people will reach maturity as Christians, that they'll grow up in maturity in Christ. And that's 
the closest thing to a New Testament definition of discipleship we have. And so I defined discipleship in that first week based on that passage as discipleship is the disciplined process of growing in Christian maturity. The disciplined process of growing in Christian maturity. And what this series has been about is getting a sort of prime in the pump, getting us ready to raise the bar on our discipleship as individuals, as families, and as a church in 2022. And we've been discussing how we plan to do that by implementing these discipleship groups. And you'll hear more about that today. And so the series... My image for this series has been the anatomy of discipleship, right? I've said discipleship, you can break down into like sort of the vital elements or the vital body parts or organs of discipleship. And I paralleled each organ with an element of discipleship from the book of Acts. And so the first was prayer, the lifeblood of discipleship. The next week was learning. Being a student is what a disciple is. Learning. That's the heart of discipleship. So we've got blood in a body, we've got a heart, and now we need to put a, a skeleton and flesh and muscle on that body. And that was last week, fellowship. Our fellowship with each other is the muscle of discipleship. So what we've been doing is we've been building this body, and now we pretty much have it all together. We have a whole, we have a whole body. We just need to complete it. We need to complete one last thing for this body to be alive. And that's what we'll look at this morning. We've been focusing on what Acts says the early church devoted themselves to. And we saw they devoted themselves to five things. In Acts 1.14 it says that the, the, the disciples devoted themselves to prayer. And here in chapter 2, our key verse is verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or doctrine, or instruction, and the fellowship. And today we come to the last two elements in this verse. The breaking of bread and the prayers. Now notice, as I said last week, each item in chapter 2, verse 42, is definite and specific. It's got the word the in front of it. It's that way in English, and it's that way in Greek as well. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. A specific doctrinal content. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, a specific practice. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The breaking of bread and the prayers. We're going to take those together to conclude our series. And as we'll see, these last two items, breaking bread and prayer, they are about worship. Worship, And so that will be our focus this morning. The final element we need to complete our picture of the anatomy of discipleship is worship. So let's take the first point then, a house of worship. Let's take these two items here, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And let me explain what Luke the author of Acts is referring to when he talks about the breaking of bread and the prayer. So first, the breaking of bread. Why is it specific? Why is it definite? What does he mean by the breaking of bread? And what did he expect his early readers to understand the breaking of bread refers to? Well, some of you may have already guessed it. 
It is a euphemism in the early apostolic church, especially in the book of Acts, for communion, for the Lord's Supper. The breaking of bread refers to the Lord's Supper. And you can see this because Luke talks about the Lord's Supper in this language of breaking bread frequently. The, the author of the Gospel of Luke also wrote volume 2, which is the book of Acts. And so we can look at the Gospel of Luke and see how he uses this language. And if you go back to Luke chapter 22, verse 19, in the context of the Last Supper, chapter 22, verse 19, we read, Luke describing Jesus in the Last Supper says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took bread, and he broke it. And then later in Luke, in chapter 24, in the last chapter of the gospel, he says, Luke 24, 30. He says, When he, this is uh, the disciples, are with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Okay, they get to Emmaus, and they, Jesus stops with these two disciples, and he goes in for the evening with them. And it says, when he, Jesus, was at table with them, these two Emmaus Road disciples, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized who he was. They recognized who Jesus was as he was breaking the bread. And then Luke tells us this in verse 35. It says, And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So Jesus sat down with them at the table and he had a little reenactment of the, of the Last Supper with these guys. And they're like, hold on a minute, deja vu, I've seen this somewhere. I've seen this breaking of bread somewhere. Oh yeah, th this is the Last Supper. Who is this guy? This must be Jesus. Jesus was recognized to them in the breaking of the bread, he says. Now, this is in, this is in Jesus. Skip ahead later in the book of Acts to chapter 20, and we read this about the Apostle Paul. In chapter 20, verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week... Now, we know that's when early Christians gathered to worship. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and check this out, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. <laughs> right? I've never even preached till 12 noon. What if I preach till midnight? <laughs> right? You think the Puritans had long church services. Paul preached until someone fell out of a window. <laughs> that's, that's the next part of the story. Right? Someone's in the window. It's like it's getting later and later and later. And Paul's still preaching. He's on like point twenty-seven, and And this guy's just like, oh, Paul, let's get to the breaking bread part. We're starving. You know? And he falls out of the window. And then Paul has to go heal him. But that's, what, that's what's happening. On the first day of the week, they come together to do what? To break the bread and to hear a sermon. So the breaking of the bread is in this worship context. And then later in 
in Paul's own writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 16, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So this idea of the breaking of bread refers specifically to a meal where the Lord's Supper takes place. The Lord's Supper was part of the corporate worship life of the early apostolic church. Right? And Paul gives instructions about this, not just in chapter 10, but in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And he says in verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. When you guys gather together as a church to eat, and in the context, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. When you guys come together as a church to eat the Lord's Supper, you should wait for one another. So this was something that took place as part of a gathered corporate worship service. The Lord's Supper was actually a ritual, a sacrament, that was observed as part of an actual full meal in people's homes where Christians gathered as house churches in those early days. Before they had their own buildings, before they had their own sanctuaries and houses of worship, they just had each other's houses. Now they gathered at the temple, we're told here in, in Acts 2, they gathered at the temple, but they also gathered in each other's homes to worship. It says in verse... Uh, 46 and 47, Acts 2, 46 and 47, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. This was in the context of praise. This was in the context of gathering. This was in the context of an actual meal that was taking place. So these early Christians would gather in different people's homes, and they would have a different elder who was in charge of the, of the house church that met there. And then they also came together. All the house churches would meet in the temple in one central location for one big worship service and ministry. But they didn't eat the Lord's Supper there because they just they couldn't. They were just in the temple. You know, it'd be hard to actually get all those thousands of people to sit down and have a meal in the temple. That'd be difficult to do. So they did that when they gathered to worship as individual houses around Jerusalem. This is, of course, before they have church buildings. And so what they did was they would have a full meal... And the Lord's Supper would be part of that meal, and there would be sermon, and there would be prayer, and there would be praise. And this was early Christian worship in those very, very first days. Communion is essential, therefore, to discipleship. The Lord's Supper is essential to discipleship. And I wonder if that's a brand new thought for some of you, to think, what is it really important about, if I want to grow as a Christian and become mature and I want to be a good disciple of Jesus, what are some things I need to be doing? And there's a long list of things that we could come up with that are all good, biblical, and true. But one of them that better be on the list is, we've got to do the Lord's Supper regularly and often. If I'm going to be a strong, growing, mature Christian, we better have the sacrament often 
and regularly. Communion is essential to discipleship. Going back to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, I read to you where he said the cup of blessing that we bless is a participation in Christ's blood and the, and the bread that we break is a participation in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 16. But then here's verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. This sacrament that we get to observe today, the Lord's table, it is the sacrament of unity. It is the sacrament that puts on display not just our union with Christ as we partake of His flesh and blood, symbolized and signified to us in the elements, present with us in a heavenly and mysterious way, not only does it symbolize our union with Christ, but it actually symbolizes our unity with each other. And it doesn't just symbolize it as like a neat little object lesson or a demonstration. It actually does it. It actually takes all of the, all of the sinful crumbs, that's us, and binds us together as one bread, one loaf, one body. That by, since we're all partaking of the one Christ, we're all being bound together into this one entity together, one real body. The many become one flesh with Christ and with one another. This is what binds us together as one body at one table in fellowship with Christ. It's the sacrament of unity and therefore it is essential to our discipleship. It's essential to us being the one body of Christ. It's actually the symbol of our fellowship. If fellowship is essential to discipleship, as we saw last week, then this sacrament is essential to demonstrating and displaying that fellowship and that unity. It's the ultimate point of fellowship, where we all have an equal table side by side with the Lord, an equal seat at the table of the Lord. So that's the breaking of bread. It's the Lord's Supper. It's an element of worship, and it's essential to our discipleship. What about the prayers? The prayers. There's not quite as much about this um, as there is the breaking of bread. But in the apostolic church, the apostles observed the Jewish hours of prayer that took place at the temple. So in early Christianity, they were still going to the temple. They were still worshiping in the temple. Now, they weren't there putting their trust in the blood of bulls and goats that are being sacrificed there. They're there to watch this, this ritual that points them to Christ. And they're there to say, see how that lamb just shed his blood? Let me tell you about the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's this beautiful opportunity to, to evangelize and preach and worship. And they're doing that. But they're there participating in the life of the temple. And also they observe the hours of prayer. And there were two of those. 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And right after the, our passage in Acts 2, 42 to 47, the very next verse at the beginning of chapter 3 says... And now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And on the way, they healed somebody. But they're on their way up to the temple to observe the hours of prayer. 
prayer was this thing that the church did in the temple. They gathered for worship through prayer. And Acts tells us in chapter 6 that the apostles devoted themselves to leading the church in prayer and preaching services. Acts chapter 6 verse 4. It says, we will put, we will devote ourselves, there's our word again, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now that doesn't just mean the apostles are going to go off and read their Bibles by themselves and pray in private and they're going to spend all their time doing that and don't bother me. It means we are going to give ourselves to the ministry of the word, to preaching and to prayer. And that's something they do for the whole church. They lead the church in preaching and they lead the church in prayer. These are the things they gather to do as part of their corporate worship. And then Luke gives us examples of what these corporate prayer times looked like. And I'll just point to one of these in uh, chapter 4. After the apostles are told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus and they're threatened, they come together as soon as they leave... As soon as they leave the office of the authorities, uh, in Acts 4, 23, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they didn't complain and moan and, and file a lawsuit. No, they lifted their voices together to God and they prayed. And they prayed. And at the end of their prayer, Luke records this. In verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So it was like a, it was almost like a repeat of Pentecost where the place is shaken by the prayers that they were lifting up together. So mighty was their devotion and the power of their, of their prayers. And these are things that took place as part of their gathered worship. So the temple and the house gatherings that we read about in chapter 2 in our passage, they were worship centers. And really, if you think about it, all of verse 42 in our text, Acts 2.42, describes a worship service where you, you come together for the apostles' teaching, you come together for fellowship, you come together to observe the sacraments, and you come together to pray. That's a worship service. That's, the, that's a basic worship service. Preaching, prayer, and all of it. So these, the temple and these house churches are where they gathered together to worship in word, sacrament, fellowship, and prayer. They were devoted to these things, and we should be as well. So that takes us now to point two. This is where we connect it with our analogy here of the anatomy of discipleship. Some of you may have read the title and thought, okay, anatomy of discipleship, and here you're saying that worship is the breath of discipleship. Now, if you open any anatomy textbook, probably, it's not going to list breath as a body part. Right? It's not really anatomical. To human beings. And that's right. Breath is not exactly a body part. So it's a loose connection, I'll admit. But the reason it's included is because without the breath, the body is dead. Right? James says that in chapter 2 of his letter. The body without breath 
is dead. We all know this. Breath is essential to the life of the body. And worship is like that for us. Worship is essential. It is vital for the life of the church and for the life of our discipleship. A church without worship is a church that can't breathe. A church that has unbiblical worship, ungodly worship, worship that they've made up and haven't bothered to consult Scripture to say, is this the kind of worship that pleases God? Is this what God expects of us in worship? Or do we think that God will just accept whatever fancy thing we throw together? Those churches that have empty worship, unbiblical worship, false worship, or that just don't care about worship, those churches aren't breathing. Those churches are gasping. Those churches are suffocating places to be. Worship is what has to fill our lungs and flood our body with the spiritual oxygen it needs to live and move and grow. And if you've been a part of a church or know of a church or have seen churches in the past that you just go in there on Sundays and it's just like something's flat, something's missing, something's not... It just, I don't know. It's not necessarily that you're supposed to have this like revival experience every time you come in here and if you don't feel like running the aisles then, then I guess the spirit wasn't there that Sunday. I've been in churches like that, right? Where it's like, if you don't have this special experience, then you didn't really worship or God really wasn't in it. And I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. Not at all. But there's a difference between, you know, being calm and reserved and not feeling like hooping and hollering and running around, but still being in your soul satisfied with worship and thinking, I really worshiped God today. I didn't feel like getting all enthusiastic, but that's fine. <laughs> I worship God today, and I am pleased to be in His presence, and I trust He is pleased with the worship we gave Him. Right? Like normal Presbyterian worship? Right? <laughs> right, I saw, <laughs> maybe you've seen this uh, meme going around, but I've seen this. It's, uh, it's that, that, that picture of, uh, of um, Bernie Sanders, who was like at an outside event at the White House, and he's in his mitts, and he's got his mask, and he's all, you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that one where he's just like totally coated up and covered up, and he's sitting there like this? And the meme said, a Pentecostal not enjoying a sermon, and a Presbyterian enjoying a sermon. <laughs> and these are the same picture. Right. Okay. Right. So I'm not talking about fishing for these, like, trying to get you emotionally worked up and whipped up and manipulated and, and running around. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a church that has vital, living, soul-satisfying, God-honoring, biblical worship, so that you know that the glory of God rests upon the place, and His holiness is feared, and His word is treasured, and His truth is exalted, and His name is hallowed, and it is a holy space to be in. 
where real worship is taking place, not at the superficial surface level. And I'm not saying that if, it's, if it looks emotional, that it's necessarily superficial. I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, that that's not the point. Getting those experiences isn't the point. But being in a place that knows that God rests on this house, and we are in His territory on His day, and we are going to bow at His feet and reverence Him and lift high His praise and honor Him and sing to Him and fellowship and it's all about Him and we know He meets with us in a powerful way when we gather to do these things as He has told us to do in His Word. That's what I'm talking about. And if you've been in a place that it, it just doesn't feel like that, it's silly and slapstick and... And it's just light and, and it's just, it's, there's no weight to it. There's no, it's just paper thin. If you've been in churches like that, worship that's deep and biblical and rich, that's vital to the life of a church. And a church that just lets its worship go by the wayside is gasping and suffocating. And it's suffocating for people to sit under a ministry like that or to be part of a body like that. And we don't want to be that way. We want to avoid that at all costs. We want to let, we want to just breathe in deep and just let His Spirit run its course through our body with our worship. Indeed, worship must be the rhythm, the natural rhythm of our lives and of our discipleship, right? We have this natural, normal rhythm when we breathe, right? We're inhaling, exhaling, and we just do that rhythm all day, every day. That's part of what it means to be alive, just going through this normal rhythm. And worship needs to be the steady pace and rhythm of our church's life and of our discipleship as we breathe in His grace and breathe out His praise. That's the rhythm of worship. Breathing in, breathing out. Taking Him in, and exhaling His praises. Worship must be the breath in our lungs, but it also must be the air that we're breathing. Not just the breath that's down on the inside of the body that's in the lungs, but also the air that's around us, the air that's in the room. We must have an atmosphere here of worship. We must have a culture of worship where all of us, we just, we don't have to come in here and fake it and try to work it up and try to manufacture it. We're all sold out to coming into this place and into our individual home groups, wherever we are, and we are there to do business with God and we are there to worship. And we have a culture where we just know that and we feel that and we foster it among ourselves. That when we come to the Lord's day, it doesn't feel like the other six days. When we come in this place, it doesn't feel like just any old building that you go into. When we gather as small groups, it doesn't just feel like going over to watch a show or to, or to have, have some fun. Now, hopefully you can have fun when you're together, but you know that you're here to do business with God. We're here to worship. We're here to worship as our discipleship, as we pray together as we learn together, as we fellowship and care for one another. This is our rhythm of worship. Worship is what fuels us for the Christian life. 
This is the hot engine that drives the train of our discipleship, our worship. We are called to be devoted to worship, to be passionate about worship. That brings us then to our third and final point today. In the early church, as they did these things, they devoted themselves to prayer, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. As they devoted themselves to these things, God blessed their discipleship. He blessed them with an overflow of growth, an overflow of ministry, an overflow of mighty works of God. Miraculous things were taking place in the early church. Amazing things were happening as an overflow of their devotion. In Acts chapter 2, in our passage in verse 43, it says, And awe or fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And look what happened. God, the Lord, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What happened when they got serious about discipleship? People got saved. God brought people in. They were growing in their discipleship. Miracles were happening. God's power was on them. And people were getting converted and coming to the Lord as a result. In chapter 4, we read about more of this in verses 32 and 33. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. We talked about this last week. Mega grace. Enormous grace. Gargantuan grace was all over that early church. As God did his wonders with them and through them. And one last example in chapter 5 of Acts. Verses 12 and following, we read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. That's the area of the temple they gathered in. And verse 14, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. People were flocking to the church because out of the overflow of their discipleship, out of the overflow of their worship, they were ministering to people's needs. They were bringing healing and hope to people who were destitute and without Christ. They were bringing the gospel. They were bringing a full gospel for the full person. The whole gospel for the whole man. Body and soul. And God was doing wondrous things with them. And guys, here's what I want to encourage us with as we bring this to a close this morning, is that we too will grow 
both in our own spiritual development and as a body. We'll grow spiritually, which is the most important kind of growth for us and the one we should be most focused on. But we also have this example that God just might... We don't know what his sovereign plan is for us, but he just might fill this place with people. And not just folks that have already been here and are making their way back. We want them too, but new people. People who were lost and found Christ because of something we did for them. That God used to convert them, to bring others in. We have a hope that we can grow too if we devote ourselves to these things like they did. If we all come together, all of us, no one left out, if we all come together as a living body of disciples, breathing in His grace, breathing out His praise in worship, a living body of disciples that all of us are excited to bring new people into. So what we're wanting to do is to get our own house in order so that we have something that's deep and rich and biblical to bring people into. We don't want to invite them into nothing. (laughs) We want to invite them into something that's rich and and living and, and active where they can grow and know the Lord in new ways. The mission of the church is the overflow of worship and maturity in Christ. Discipleship drives the purpose and mission of the church. And so let's devote ourselves, forks, fellow Christians. Let's devote ourselves to these things. Let's get passionate about worship. Let's get passionate about growing in our Christian maturity. Let's get passionate and devoted to growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as we're called to do. And let's just see the places God might take us, both as individual Christians and as a church. Let's just see. Let's devote ourselves to these things in 2022. And let's just see what God has in store for us. And let's be fervent in prayer. That he does a work and a wonder that we could never take credit for. So that he gets all the praise and the glory. As we seek together to grow up in him as his devoted disciples. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would indeed help us to catch fire. That you would make us like kindling for the burning. And that your spirit would fall upon us afresh and anew. And let it start with each individual heart. And then let it spread to our marriages. Let it spread to our families. Let it spread out through our home and down the street in our communities. Let it spread to our church. Help us to be deep in you, rooted in you, eager to know you more, to go higher up and farther in, to not be content with how far you've brought us, to give thanks for how far you've brought us so far, to worship you for that, but then to be eager for more, to be eager for more 
of who you are, more of your spirit upon us, more of your power among us, more of your glory in our midst. Show us your glory. Make our worship here so biblical, so rich, so satisfying that the Lord's Day becomes a delight to us. That being here becomes a delight and not that thing we have to do because we're Christians. That thing we get to do as a foretaste of eternity. Make it that for, for me, make it that for us. And then as we gather in our discipleship groups, as we gather in smaller groups, as we gather in as across this community, may our discipleship be deepened. May worship fill our lungs. May it fuel all that we do for you. Help us to grow, Lord. Help our church to grow. As we cry out for revival, light a fire in us to labor for reformation at the same time. And show us who you are. Show us what you have in store for us. Write these truths upon our hearts. Sanctify us. Change us. Don't let us go backwards. But help us to press forward. To press forward towards that heavenly call in Christ that belongs to each one of us. Do these things, we pray, for your ultimate glory and for our greater good. In Jesus' name, amen.